0: Amen, thanks guys. We're gonna spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. We like to do this every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. Uh, Particularly in this series, we've called it Who is Jesus? We've been looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of the Apostle John. So we're in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some Bibles under the chairs. We wanna get you in the practice of regularly cracking it open and looking at it and studying it with us. Uh, As we look through this series, we're getting to see who God is, because Jesus says, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. This week, we're calling it Distractions as we finish out uh, John chapter 6. I want to thank Stephen Watson for starting us on John chapter 6 last week. I got to hear the recording. He did a great job. I enjoyed hearing that. Um, Yeah, give him a hand. Thank you very much. This week, we're calling it Distractions as Jesus warns his followers about distractions that can keep them from really seeing him and trusting him and following him. And so we have the same issue today. There are things that can distract us. I was just distracted the other night um, before we left town. Uh, We were getting ready to leave. You know, it's always a little stressful when you're trying to pack up to leave town, right? Kind of putting things in order when you're going to be away for a few days. We were going to see our older two kids who live in Memphis now. Um, So it was fun for us to get away and a great time with my wife. Uh, But Thursday night... I uh, had just gone out to visit a church member's house to deliver some things for another ministry, came home about 8.30, 9 p.m., so it was dark. Um, my neighbor had just moved, so I thought, oh, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park in front of my neighbor's house, you know, to make my neighbor's house look more occupied because it's empty right now. So I parked over across the cul-de-sac from our house, so I was kind of breaking routine in a different place, and then I was going to clean out my car to get stuff together so we could leave in the morning. Um, so, I was gathering up my things, I had my laptop out loose and some other books I was arranging, so I gathered stuff up, got the right books into my backpack, got my laptop into my backpack, I set that down on the ground, go back into the car, and I'm kind of gathering up other things. I had some other books. I was like, I don't need these, I'll just leave them stacked up on the, on the passenger seat, so I stacked those up. I had my coat, right, because the weather is hot, cold, hot, cold every day, so i have just been leaving my coat in my car, right, because you never know if you're going to need it or not. So I gathered my coat. I was like, we're going to Memphis. It's going to be colder in Memphis. Need my coat. Uh, Some missionaries of ours just left town and gave me some of their groceries earlier that day. So I was like, okay, I'll take these groceries inside. So it's just kind of gathering odds and ends, getting ready to leave for three days to Memphis. Um, So I went inside and uh, the next morning, about 6.30, packing the car up, and I'm like, where's my backpack? What happened to my backpack? And I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, of course, search the whole house and, and by now the car is loaded. My wife's literally like waiting in the car. You know, it's like six thirty, seven AM, we're about to roll out, and I, I still can't find it. So I search everywhere in the house. I search outside the house, I start retracing my steps, and I'm like, Oh, the last time I saw my backpack was when I was cleaning out the car in the dark, you know, at nine PM last night, and I set it on the ground. And now my backpack's gone. I was so sad, right, because it had some of my most valuable things in there. I had, like, bills in there. I had important papers. I had my five, like, most important books that I wanted to take on the trip. I had my laptop with years of information, Um, cleaning out the car, getting ready for something good and beautiful and wonderful this trip, and we still had a great time. I was distracted from something else that was really valuable. And that's kind of the analogy, the parallel I want you to see in the text here. Jesus is saying that, that good things can distract us from other good things. And really, Jesus is going to be more pointed than the backpack story, right? Because you could argue, maybe it was worth giving up a backpack for a great weekend away. You know, I don't know. Um, Jesus is going to say, you can sometimes give up the most important things because you're distracted by less important things. You, you can sometimes say, I'm going I'm to pour myself into this good thing, and I'm going to miss the best thing. I'm, I'm going to miss a connection with God. I'm going to miss real spiritual life in Christ because I've settled for second best. So we're gonna read the text here. We're gonna start in verse 22, chapter six, verse 22. I'm gonna read kind of the beginning to get get the flavor of where we're going and then we'll look at more of it as we move along. So starting in verse 22, it says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So if you were here last week, you can go back and read this if you weren't, Jesus walked on water. They don't know this, so they're just kind of discovering this, and this is what the text is revealing. Like, they're figuring out, wait, the disciples went on this boat, but Jesus walked off? How, you know, how does this work? And so in verse 23, it says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're trying to follow Jesus, right? He had just fed the 5,000 and then took off and disappeared. Verse 25 When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're confused. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, you're not coming after me because of the signs of who I am, you're coming after me because you want your bellies to be filled again. Second best, missing Jesus. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work. Don't miss this. This is the main work. Believe in him whom the Father has sent. Don't miss the most important thing because you're so focused on the second best things. Don't be distracted by what really matters. So let me pray for us and then we'll look at the rest of what he has to say. God, we thank you for your word um, and we confess, Father, that we are easily distracted and we're distracted by many things. As a matter of fact, people are saying that's, that's a mark of our generation. It's a mark of our time. We're so distracted. We have so many good things, so many things to look at and entertain us and fill us that we're distracted from what really matters. So God, we pray that you would show up here in a unique way, that your spirit would, would shock us as you shocked these people at this time. You'd help us to see how good you are, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Distractions. Good distractions can distract us from something better. But that's the big idea, right? Uh, throughout our years here at the church, we focus on this biblical idea sometimes called idolatry, which is the idea that you can take a good thing and start worshiping the good thing and miss the true God. Who gave you that good thing as a gift, right? And so we can turn good things into something they were never meant to be. Instead of receiving them as a gift to be enjoyed and as a stewardship to, to use for God's glory, we, we start to put all our attention on them and we miss God himself. And so Jesus is going to shock this audience with some really hard words. This is some, some of the hard sayings of Jesus here. And he's going to actually drive some people away. So I kind of want to offer a warning to you that the same thing may happen to you. Um, and, and we need to be very careful as Christians because we swing from one side to the other, right? There are kinds of Christians that say, we never want to shock people. We never want to offend people. We always want to be nice. And yes, we want to be nice. But sometimes Jesus shocked people, right? But we can also swing with a text like this. This is a favorite text of Christians that like to offend, Okay. And we can swing to that other side and say, hey, look at what Jesus did. We should be all about offending people and chasing them off, right? That should be our Holy Spirit agenda. And so we need to be careful and recognize that both are a part of the Christian life. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. And so we need to make sure we get that he's not just trying to offend people, he's trying to call them to life, right? So don't miss the point. Don't think this text is about, hey, we should take on a ministry philosophy of offending people as much as possible. No, Jesus is offending them because He's doing it to get them to him. You gotta see Jesus. And if that's the offense, then okay. But we don't aim to offend on our way to getting people to Jesus. We aim to get people to Jesus. And that's what we're gonna see Jesus doing here. So we're gonna see three things that can distract us, three distractions. One is fullness. Fullness can distract us. He's gonna talk specifically about full bellies, right? But there's a broader sense I think this applies to just fullness in life. We have full eyes, right? Because we're always looking at screens. We're always watching Netflix. We're always looking at Facebook feeds. We're always reading Twitter. We're always looking at the 24-hour news cycle. There's just constant information flowing at us all the time. So we're full in a lot of different ways. Specifically here, he's gonna focus in on the fullness of our bellies, food. We're also gonna look at the distraction of intelligence. I think that's a tricky one. Um, You've got skeptics that are intelligent and they're just smart enough to miss Jesus, right? That's a danger for us as well. Uh, We don't wanna be dumb but we also don't wanna make an idol out of our intelligence. And then the distraction of strength. It's gonna zero in on the disciples who are strong and committed and have have strong wills and are following him hard. And he's gonna say, hey, don't don't let that distract you from your real need of me as well. So different distractions. We'll start with the distraction of fullness. Um, Picking up again, just repeating in verse 25, I already read this part, but it says, when they found him on the other side, they came to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So again, they're legitimately confused about how he got to the other side for whatever reason, Jesus didn't reveal the walking on water to the crowd. He revealed it to his closest followers. We don't fully understand, you know, we don't always get why he does things the way he does things, but that's what he's done here. And then the other broader followers come to him. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So that's where he really zeroes in on this issue of fullness. So this first point is the distraction of fullness. Jesus says, this is your problem. Your bellies are full and you want them to keep being full. You wanna keep filling yourself, right? Uh, when I eat, sometimes my family likes to make fun of me. And my friends make fun of me for this as well. Sometimes I kind of murmur, you know, and I make noises of satisfaction, noises of fullness. I'm just like, mmm, hmm you know, and I kind of just make these noises because I'm so happy and I feel so good, right? I love to be full. As you can see, there's not much of me, and so I spent my entire life being hungry. I've just always been hungry. Now that's, you know, I'm 46 now. It's slowing down a little bit. Um, I'm not as hungry all the time as I used to be, but, but there's just this sensation of, oh, I didn't think I'd ever be full, and so when I'm eating a meal, I just celebrate that fullness. It feels so good, right? And then an hour later, it's gone again. Um, Jesus says that can be a, a major distraction that can be a danger. That can be something that can, can kind of make you veer off course and you can miss your need for him. Sometimes our brokenness, our neediness, our hunger in many different ways can make us wake up to, you know what, there's something wrong with the world, there's something wrong with me, I need Jesus. But when we stop short of getting to Jesus and we fill ourselves on whatever's right in front of us, again, it might be food, it might be drink, it might be a screen, it might be just some fun, temporary fun. When we fill ourselves in those temporary ways, we can sometimes numb the hunger, right? We're kind of numbing the need, we're numbing the fullness, we're numbing the hunger. We don't realize the deeper need for Jesus that only he can satisfy. And so he's just, he's going right after their hearts, right? He's just saying, You're, you don't really want me, you just want the bread. I just fed five thousand. you just want more food, Right? You want this holy bread that I made. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of, your, of the loaves. Verse 27, he continues, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So you can spin your wheels and work and try and, and get out, put out effort. You can work for temporary food or you can work for permanent food. That's the contrast he's setting up here. And again, don't misunderstand. Food is good. God's made us to eat food. God made us to live in the physical world. So we don't want to go to like the Greek philosophy extreme where we say, these bodies are prison houses and the world is completely evil. No, God's made the world to be good. We've made it evil, right? And so in that sin and in that brokenness in this world, we can, we can miss the point and we can think that food is the answer. And he's saying, don't, don't work for that temporary food, but work for the ultimate food. He goes on, verse 28, and he says, well, I didn't finish verse 27. The son of man will give to you this eternal life, this food that endures. And he says, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So again, he's driving home this, the Father has commissioned me, sent me, I'm the one you need to come to and come through. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So he said at the contrast, that there's a kind of work you do for temporary food, there's a kind of work you can do for eternal food, work for the eternal food. They answer back, okay, what's that work? How, how, how do we do that work, right? What do you mean, Jesus? Clarify this for us. What do we do to do the works of God? First 29 is a really key verse. If you underline in your Bible, underline this. I mean, even if you don't underline in your Bible, go ahead and underline this, okay? Verse 25, uh, 29, 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is real, real clear. We can't ultimately work for our salvation, right? Christians believe in Jesus. He changes our hearts. He writes the law in our hearts. And then we work out of that new identity, right? So Christians work, but, but we don't work to get him to love us. The work that we do is really just believing in him, trusting in him that he's done the work for us. So the gospel is that Jesus is our substitute and only he could perfectly fulfill the works of God. Only he could be the true Adam, the true human, the true Israelite, only he could live up to what we're made to do. And so he takes our place, he's our substitute, and we trust in him. And then through trusting in him, he gives you spiritual life. He forgives you for your sins, he gives you resurrection power, and then you work out of that. So that's what he's saying here. Well, what's the work we do? Believe me. Trust me. That's what he's calling us to. So don't miss that. In in all the offense that Jesus is causing here, yeah, he's offending people in what he's saying. He's saying, to come to him. Don't miss him. The offense is the gospel. The offense is not style or preference here. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So uh, understand this, he's just said he's the answer. They need to trust him and he's like, okay, prove it. That's basically what they're saying, right? Prove it, show us something, do another little trick. I mean, sure you just fed like maybe 10, 20,000 people, but we're not so sure about you. Do another trick for us. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're pressing him to feed him more. Do you see this? He just fed them and they say, we want more food. And he's like, you really just need to trust me. It's not about the food, guys. Trust me. And they're like, no, give us more food. Then we'll trust you. Bless us more, then we'll trust you. Have you ever tried to make that bargain with God? God, I'll trust you next week after you fix my circumstances. I won't trust you today. I need you to fix my circumstances. And then he does, maybe, and he's like, I need you to fix more of my circumstances. Can you put more food in the pantry? Can you give me a better job? Can you make me happier? Can you make me more fulfilled? And that's this constant temptation, and Jesus is, he's calling them out on it here. Jesus said, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's like, just to get this straight, Moses wasn't the one giving out the bread. Like he was there, he was a part of it. It was God that gifted you, right? Keep that straight. Make sure you understand that the grace, the gift comes from God. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, and it's really interesting. He's saying every time God gave something to people, he talks about the spiritual rock with the Exodus people in the Old Testament and other analogies as well. He's saying when God was giving grace to people, it was really Christ in that, because Christ is always the grace of God communicated to mankind. That's kind of hard for us to understand because Christ wasn't named back then and he didn't appear right in his fleshly form in the same way. There's a sense in which every time God is giving good grace to people, that is the eternal Son, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the true bread, I'm the grace that comes down from heaven. And they said, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never Thirst. Does that kind of ring a bell? If you've been with us, we, we saw this kind of language a few weeks ago when he's talking to the woman at the well. He's using a very parallel language here that he's the well of the eternal life that springs up within and constantly satisfies our thirst. I said back then, and I'll repeat it now, he's not saying that you'll never feel the sensation of thirst or hunger again. He's saying you will never remain hungry and thirsty again. That's a really important distinction because we will continue to suffer in this world and we'll hunger and we'll long and we'll groan, as it says, Second Corinthians and in Romans 8. We're going to groan, we're going to long, and then Jesus will be the one that satisfies us. And if you entrust yourself to him, he will be with you always. He will be the food that's always there to feed you when you continue to feel hungry. He will be the spring that springs up within you when you continue to thirst. So you're going to keep longing and you're going to keep coming back to Jesus who is with you now. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. So now here he's gonna lay down the gauntlet. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now I'm starting to get into a little touchy area here. We sometimes describe this, theologians talk about this as sovereign grace, basically that God can give grace to who he wants. And it's very controversial, right, because this can be confusing, there's this concept we talked about when we were in Romans, that God is absolutely sovereign and God does what God wants to do. And anything we get from God is God's grace, his kindness to us. And that's worked out in a lot of different ways and Christians you know, come up with different ways to explain that. We also know simultaneously that human beings are genuinely responsible. And so we wanna be careful when we talk about God's sovereign graciousness, right? His kingly giving out of grace and life to people that that doesn't mean we're some kind of like robot, right? We are genuinely responsible actors in this world and the scripture is real clear about that. So this is one of those touchy areas where we're like, it's hard to really explain that. So what I wanna zero in on here is what Jesus is trying to do, I think. What's Jesus' motivation for saying this? I think when we think about the idea of God being sovereignly in control and giving grace to who he wants to give grace to, I see two pastoral reasons throughout the scriptures to do that. When I just kind of trace out the different scriptures that talk about this stuff, sometimes called election or predestination, that God's kind of sovereignly moving people, somehow there's this bigger plan. I see like in Ephesians, I see in Romans 9, sometimes he's undermining legalistic people who think they're saved just because of how awesome they are. And he's like, no, 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 it's not you. I'm gonna save who I wanna save, right? You don't get to save yourself. You can't save yourself. And then sometimes he's comforting outsiders who are like, God could never love me. I don't belong. I've never belonged. I've always been told that. I'm stupid. I'm shameful. I'm broken. Nobody wants me. And and God is like, no, I I did. I picked you out from eternity past. I love you. I delight in you. And so for me, this is just how I think as a pastor. I I see these pastoral reasons to, to cling to this hope. Now again, it can be kind of philosophically confusing. We're like, okay, if God is completely sovereign, then are we really responsible? And I would just say, man, the Bible teaches both things. God is totally sovereign and we are responsible. And then good luck at figuring that out, right? Like (laughs) how do both of those things work? I'm not sure, right? But here he's saying to these people who don't really want Jesus, they just want food. He's like, you can't really come to me unless the Father brings you to me. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then hear this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So in case you're worried about, again, this hard to understand philosophical concept that God is completely sovereign and you start thinking, well, what if someone like wants to love God and he's like, nope, haven't chosen you, get out, right? Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. If you come to Jesus in faith, he will never cast you out. So don't miss this. He's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And he's kind of stiff-arming the people that are saying, well, we don't really want you, Jesus. We just want your blessings. And he's like, all right, well, you don't really want me. So, so again, I think the main idea here is not the offense. The main idea is come to Jesus. I think that's the main drive in the text. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the confidence we can have in Jesus. Jesus won't let you go. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You might be in a place in your life right now where you're wondering, like, I don't know if he's really got a hold of me very good, right? You feel like you're slipping out of his grip, or maybe you feel like your grip is loosening. Know that his grip will never loosen. He will hold on to you. He will finish what he started. He will get you there. Your confidence is in him, not in how strong your grip is, it's in how strong his grip is. Verse 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, we see even in this this text, the tension, like people can only come to me if my father brings them. And then he says, and here's how it works, trust me, and you're good, okay? So if the philosophy is confusing you, just trust him, just trust him, just come to him and he will save you, he will not send you away. He will save you, he will give you life. So Jesus' big idea here is you're coming to me because you wanna have a full belly, you want more food, you want more tricks, you want more blessings, but you don't really want me. And this is such a huge danger in our spiritual life that we can be pursuing after the blessings and not really pursuing after the person of God himself. And so I just wanna call us again to repent to that and say, Jesus, I want you with or without the blessings, right? And we can be honest, like, yeah, I'd love the blessings too, right? Like, we can be honest about that. All the things that Jesus said in the New Testament about prayer, he never says, don't ask for the blessings. He just says, make sure you want me primarily and recognize that primarily the blessings come through him. And there's this great quote by C.S. Lewis about kids missing the point and being filled up with the little things instead of finding the bigger thing. This uses this illustration of kids making mud pies. I got a picture here of kids playing out. Man, making mud pies is so fun, right? I'm sure some of you have done that. Maybe you still do it, I don't know. But a real pie is better, right? I mean, mud pies are fun, but a real pie is better. And C.S. Lewis is talking about this in, uh, it's it's an essay called The Weight of Glory, which is really good. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex, and ambition. He's saying we're messing around with these things and thinking they will fill us up. He says we're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus talks about this, John Piper takes this, if you've ever read the, the book Desiring God, John Piper takes this and runs with it. The idea is not that God doesn't want our joy, God wants our ultimate joy. Because sometimes as Christians we get mixed up about that. Like we, we hear the thing about, don't, you don't want a full belly, you want to come to Jesus and be filled by him eternally and, and we interpret that like, oh, God doesn't want me to be happy, he wants me to be eternally sad with him, right? No, he's saying there's more joy in him. That's the ultimate joy and we can settle for the lesser joy. So don't let the fullness distract you. So, so my question for you, we're, we're heading in to what's sometimes called the Lent season. We'll announce these little resurrection prayer guides we have here. Um, I think historically, the medieval church, particularly in other branches of Christianity, can, can do Lent, this 40-day season that the church historically practiced of prayer and fasting, can do it in a really weird, unhelpful way. Um, so if you pick up our guide, we're trying to guide you in a gospel-centered way that says, fasting is not about you being unhappy. It's not about you suffering to win God's attention. The whole idea of suffering and going without something is practicing this thing that Jesus is talking about. It's saying, I'm going to temporarily give up something that fills me so I can experience the reality of a closeness to God and go, oh, I survived, right? Like I'm gonna go without uh, Netflix for 40 days. (gasps) I survived. The point is not God wants you miserable and you can never watch a movie again. The point is a temporary exercise. That's what fasting is. It's just a temporary exercise and we don't understand it because we're so full. American culture, we just live in fullness. We can't even even fathom this this idea of fasting, right? In the ancient world, fasting happened accidentally all the time, right? (laughs) Like people went without. That's what breakfast means, right? Breakfast, that means you're breaking your fast. And that's for a lot of us, that's the only fast we ever know is just you know going six hours at night. And so in the ancient world, they fasted all the time and then Christians would say, let's make use of that and fill ourselves with Jesus through prayer and meditation on him and his goodness. So when we're hungry, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, and I'd say, you can do the same thing in your life now. Forget planned fasting, there are times when you're suffering, right? There are times when you're sick and you can say, God, I don't wanna be sick, please heal me, but I'm gonna to try, to, to try to focus on you and satisfy myself in you during the sickness, during the suffering, when you have cancer, or when you're struggling and you don't have money, or when you're going without a meal, which basically never happens for Americans, right? But whatever it is, when you're going without something, you can say, you know what, I'm gonna to try to turn this as a time to reflect and, and remember that I have ultimate fullness in Jesus. So again, the point is not you're winning his affection by suffering. You're not going, hey, look at me, God, I'm suffering for you. It's just like a workout. You're just practicing something. And I would say fasting is never permanent. It's always a temporary thing, right? So I'd encourage y'all to pick these up. We've got scriptures and prayers to read and just some kind of instruction on what fasting should be. But the idea is, what is filling me in such a way that it's medicating me and numbing me so I'm missing my need for Jesus? Why don't I undermine that temporarily so I can recenter myself back on Jesus? Right? So if you find yourself uh, watching movies, you know, two hours a day, that could be an area you need to change, right? And you could say, it doesn't mean I'll never watch movies again, but maybe I'll go completely without them for a while so I can focus on prayer, meditation. Remember that Jesus is my ultimate satisfaction. For food, you find yourself, you know, filling yourself with food. You're sad, you eat. You're mad, you eat. You're. Upset, you eat, you say, you know what, maybe I need to focus on this. Again, not to impress God with how tough you are, but just for your own soul's sake of of practicing focusing on Jesus. That's what it's about. It's a practice of prayer. It's a practice of focusing on Jesus and saying, Jesus fills me. These other things don't ultimately fill me. So, So fasting is a temporary thing. Giving something up for the practice of focusing on Jesus, it's not a permanent like, Jesus never wants me to be full again. He just says, don't miss me. Don't miss me. Okay, moving on. How'd I do? Yeah, I always go long on the first point. I'm so sorry. <laughs> point two is the distraction of intelligence. Um, so, so hear this. Um, God is not anti-reason. God is not anti-intelligence. I would argue that the Christian transformation of Western culture led to things like the scientific method, the enlightenment, um, incredible leaps in human thought are based off of Christian wisdom. But then, historically, over the last 500 years, our culture took a turn and we said, you know what, we don't need the God that taught us how to think logically anymore. We'll just take the logic and the science and we'll forget about God. And we've made an idol out of our intelligence. So don't hear me saying that Christians should be anti-science or anti-intelligence. Um, this comes up a lot of times in areas you know, where Christians kinda go overboard and being anti-science, we need to be very careful about that. There's always two sides to every issue. To be a Christian doesn't mean you're like, on this side or on that side, right? Think reasonably, be intelligent. Um, I I have personal concerns about how new age the church is shifting right now. I'm gonna say something that's gonna kind of offend you, but again, I just said, look at both sides of the issue. I said that first, now I'm gonna offend you. (laughs) In areas like oil is the solution to everything, right? Oil is great, use oils, but it's not the gospel. Right, so there's this weird shift happening right now. where we're, we're, we're turning, it's a cultural shift, we're recognizing that science isn't the answer to everything and then we're just like running hard anti-science. That's not Christianity, being anti-science, right? Be suspicious, but don't like always think science is wrong. Do, do you see that, there's, there's a balance in the middle? Of course be suspicious, science isn't the answer to everything, but don't be anti-science. Don't be, be anti-logic, don't be anti-intelligence, okay? So, okay, we'll shift back to this. Here's the way Jesus frames it. Look at verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He comes back to that sovereign grace thing again. He's like, no no one can even come to me unless the Father draws him. So here's the exchange. They're like, he just said he came down from heaven, but we know where he came from. That's Joseph and Mary's son, right? So they're just going to their intelligence. They're like, we're smarter than him, right? We can come up with holes in his argument. They're leaning on their intelligence. And Jesus is like, you're you're not that smart. Like you can't even, you can't know anything unless God reveals it to you, right? Right? He's undermining their intelligence, and again, that's where I would say God's sovereign grace is typically used or deployed in scriptures to either assure people who feel like outsiders that God can actually love them or tear down those who are proud and say, you're not that smart. You can't do it on your own. You need God's grace, right? Here, he's tearing them down. He's like, you're not that smart. You don't have it all figured out. No one even comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up in the last day. Little linguistic note, the word draw in Greek, helko, is the same word used when someone's drugged into prison, okay? And so this is a kind of buttress for people that would say, yeah, God has to sovereignly work. The Holy Spirit has to awaken you before you can ever trust in the gospel. That's because this word is like, you grab someone by the scruff of the neck and you drag them into prison. That's what this word is used for. And Jesus is saying here, People don't even believe in me unless the Father, unless the Spirit grabs them by the neck and drags them to me, right? C.S. Lewis described this uh, as a kind of reluctant sinner being drugged against his will, right, when he described his own conversion. I didn't really wanna come to Christ, but God, God just grabbed hold of me, and I couldn't help it, right? And that's how a lot of us have seen our own conversion. In verse 45, he says, it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he's seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. They had the manna, and they died, right? Earlier, the earlier point, they were like, give us some more manna, give us some more tricks. He's like, they died, that didn't really work out for them. You need something more, you need something more. And he's saying he's the one that they need. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's like, I'm I'm talking about spiritual things here. It's different than just the bread that filled their bellies. They still ended up dying. You need something to carry you past death. You need resurrection life. And he's saying, I'm the one that has that life within me. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. He's like, the father has life. The Son has life. That's something theologically that separates God from creatures. God is self-existent. He's always existed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. None of those three persons of the one Godhead are created. They're all eternally self-existent. This happy community that's always lived within themselves, who have always had life within themselves. We as humans need that life. We need it from the outside. And God gives it to us. That's what he's calling them to, to come receive it from God. Then Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give his flesh to eat? So again, understand this, they're missing the point once again. He's offending them and they're missing the point. They're too smart for their own good. Again, God's not anti-science, God's not anti-smarts. Sometimes we can make our intelligence into a sort of idol where we think we can figure everything out on our own and we miss the main point. And I think that's what he's warning against here. He's like, don't think you're so smart. You can't know anything unless God gives it to you, unless God draws you to himself. He's like, you need me. And they're like, what do you mean? How, how could that even work? How, how could you really be some kind of bread? How, you know? So how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He doubles down here. And this is where he turns hard and, and gets real offensive. Okay, Verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, another key verse here. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. I believe that's the summary statement. Again. He has life in himself, and if you come to him for life, you will have life. If you try to do things on your own and solve your problems with your own intelligence and not come to God in humility saying, God, I mean, I'm pretty smart, but I'm not smart enough to solve my problem of sin and separation, right? So again, God's saying, don't throw away your smarts. He's just saying, come humble with the open hands of faith and say, I need you, God, because I can't do this on my own. That's what he's calling us to. Again, not anti-science but be careful that you don't make an idol out of your intelligence. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Um, I wanna go back to verse 45 and say he was quoting in verse 45 this section from, I believe it's Isaiah 54. Yeah, it's 54, one of my favorite sections of scripture. So he says, as the prophets have said, The children will be taught by God. So this is a promise that Isaiah foreshadowed or foretold that there will be a future, a new covenant that God will make with his people where they'll actually love God and love other people. That day is coming. That was a promise made in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying he's the fulfillment of that. Right, so in the Old Testament, they were given the law and they rejected it. They didn't love God because the law was over here and it was a thing that they looked at and they were like, yeah, can't do that, right? In the new covenant, God puts it in our hearts. So by faith, he puts it in our hearts and we now desire to do what's right. Before we come to Jesus in faith, we see the law as this taskmaster. We don't wanna do what God says. We don't really believe that God has our best interest in mind. We really think God's just trying to make us miserable. right? We look at things like in our culture, sexual morality, issues like that. We're like, man, that just seems arbitrary. I gotta be happy. God can't tell me what to do. right? And we get this stuff all mixed up. When you come to God in, in faith and realize that Jesus died for you, it flips the script in your brain, in your heart, in your life where you start to believe, no, God's actually good. He actually loves me. That enables you then to obey him in the hard areas. And it's different for all of us, right? There are different commandments that I think just by our personal wiring are harder to follow. For some of you, you're like, I don't, I don't know about that sexual morality stuff, but God says it. I trust him, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try it, right? or honest business dealings, right? Like, man, seems like honesty is a big price to pay. I don't know about that, but God says I should, and I've seen that he loves me because he died on the cross for me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do what he says, right? And that's the law being written on our hearts. No matter what your background, no matter what your kind of internal wiring and weakness, you begin taking these faltering steps to obey Jesus, because you believe you can trust him. And that's, in a way, turning on your own intelligence, because your own intelligence is like, this is the way things work, I've got it figured out, right? So you're allowing God to edit you and tell you what's right and wrong. You're submitting your intelligence to his intelligence and saying, I'm gonna trust that he really knows what's right for me. And that's a life of submitted obedience to Jesus. He describes this as the fulfillment of what the prophets say, verse 45 in our text, Isaiah 54, they'll be taught by God. He's saying, here's the flip side of what he's saying, you're not really taught by God to these guys, he's saying, if, if you're so smart and you're rejecting me, you're not the ones that Isaiah have, has foretold, taught by God. Go back and read Isaiah 54, 55, 56, great section of scripture. Isaiah 55 is, kind of centers on that grace where he calls us to him, we've oft, often used it in the past as a call to worship, come to the waters, everybody who's thirsty. Isaiah 54 and 56 talk about how those who can't have kids in the physical world will have kids spiritually. And he's saying, those of you who are not physically, fleshly fulfilled will be fulfilled spiritually in the new covenant. You will multiply. You will have spiritual fruit. And that's what he promises in Isaiah 54 and 56. So how are you living your life? Are you allowing intelligence in your own life, your own brilliance to distract you from what God wants you to know and wants you to teach to other people? I was thinking of an analogy for this. The movie critic uh, anybody, any, raise your hand if you like read movie critics. Do you like movie critics? You like to read what they have to say? Nobody. You all hate movie critics. Okay. Um, well, that's good. That plays well into the illustration. Like regular people go to movies and they're like, that was great. And then you read a review and they're like, that was horrible. And you're like, oh, I guess I'm stupid, right? There's this tricky thing with intelligence. Okay. Again, I'm not anti-intelligence. I... I'm really speaking out of my own experience of wrestling with this, like uh, having been one of those people when I was younger that longed to be the smartest person in the room, and God has kind of broken me of that over the years, right? like you're not that smart, Dave. I've I've been learning that slowly. Um, So intelligence is a gift we can use to solve problems, right? It's it's one of the things that separates humans from animals. It's It's a wonderful gift from God that we should use for his glory. But what happens when we focus on our intelligence too much, when we rely on our intelligence too much, we can become a critic, we can become a cynic, They can't actually make anything productive, all we can do is dismantle what exists. All we can do is point out the problems and what's broken and we kind of place ourselves on the sidelines of life. We become someone who can't enjoy a movie anymore but can only criticize it, right? We become the person who sits on the sideline, right, the Monday morning quarterback who's like, they should have done this, they should have done that, but we're not actually playing anything at all. We're just watching. God has created us to go and trust him and to use our lives for his glory, don't use your intelligence as some sort of idol where you start to think, you know what, if I'm smart enough, I can, I can protect myself from getting hurt in this life. I can figure it out. I can figure out all the conspiracies. I can figure out all the things that are trying to hurt me. That's where I think Christians go wrong with this stuff where we all jump on a bandwagon, right? whatever the situations are currently in the world where you think you know, the anti-science position is the right position or the science position is the right position. Either one, right? In a way, both of those extremes on any situation, if you're on one of the extremes, you're making an idol out of your own intelligence. Right? You're saying the scientific community is wrong, I'm smarter. Or you're saying the scientific community is right because they're the smart ones. Either way, you're making an idol out of your smarts or their smarts or somebody's smarts. He's saying, you need to be taught by God. You need to trust me. Again, not anti-reason, not giving up intelligence, but trusting Jesus, feeding on me. And then, the other issue here is he talks about my flesh being real flesh and my blood being real uh, real drink, real food, real drink. Um, just, I just wanna, this is kind of an aside which I don't think this text is primarily about, but our Catholic brothers and sisters make this about a doctrine called transubstantiation. Um, so I would just say I respect that view. I don't think it's evil. I just think it's wrong, right? So I would just kind of kindly disagree. And I actually think it's where we've tried to give more detail than the Bible gives, right? So transubstantiation is the view that when you come to Jesus in faith and communion, that the, the elements actually transform into the physical body and blood of Jesus, right? So again, I'm, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying he never said that. He said... He's real food and real drink. And you know what else he said? He said, he's the real temple. And you know what else he said? He said, he's the, the spring that never runs out. Right, so he said these kinds of things repeatedly throughout scripture. And I believe we just come to him in faith and say, he's what I need. Right, so we personally believe that when you come to communion, it's an outward expression of you coming to Jesus with the, with the open hands of faith, Right and we're not assigning anything more to the elements than just, this is just something to express that ultimately I trust in Jesus. So we're eating something and drinking something to say, Jesus is my only hope, it's a pledge. It's like signing your name on a contract. It's like giving a wedding ring to someone you love, right? There are these things we do throughout our lives where we pledge ourselves. We've been reading the Lord of the Rings. There's this great little section where the hobbits like lay their sword down to these kings, right? Sorry, that was my nerd illustration of the day. They're just like, I pledge my loyalty to your king. And it's really hilarious, right? Because they're the, like these little midgets that can't do anything, and they're heroically giving themselves to the king, right? That's, that's kind of what we're doing when we come to Jesus in communion. I wish I could pass out little swords to all of you, and you could just like set your sword down when we take communion. But you're, you're saying, Jesus, I give myself to you. Now, again, I don't think it's evil or wrong that my Catholic brothers and sisters... Say there's something else happening there. I I'm, I'm just say we don't we don't know that, right? Did I do that? I don't know what just happened. We don't we can't say that, right? That's actually giving ourselves more intelligence than we have. Kind of like saying we know what's really happening. Well, we don't. We don't really know that. That's that's something that I believe ancient people made up to kind of buttress the importance of the event. When we can we can just come to it and just say, yeah, Jesus told us to eat bread and bread and wine to remember Him. We'll do that, right? And we can we can keep it at that simple level. Okay, moving on. The distraction of strength. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's like, what if you actually saw me rise up into the heavens, which they're gonna see at the end of the story. Verse 62, uh, verse 63, excuse me. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, okay, a little break here. Many of his disciples turned away, stopped walking with him. Then Jesus turns to the 12. We often use the word disciples to mean the 12. The 12 are like the special close disciples who became then apostles, apostle is the Greek word for missionary, sent out ones that he sent out, right? And so there's a distinction The 12 are disciples, but they're like the special inner circle of disciples, right? So he had a bunch of disciples, hundreds of disciples following him, and a bunch of them left. Then he turns to the 12 who are still with him, and he says this. He turns to the 12 uh, in verse, where are we? Uh, Sorry, I really need the glasses, guys, I'm sorry. I just haven't, haven't had time to go to the doctor, 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So I'll leave that one off. That's crazy, right? He had a betrayer in his midst. He knew it. I don't know how he lived with that. Um, But I love the saying from Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There's some interactions like this with Peter in other places where it kind of seems like Peter is saying, uh, "God, uh, Jesus, we would leave you if we could because you're freaking us out, <laughs> but we can't because like you're our only option, you're our only hope. And I think this is a, a beautiful picture of faith that can be a model for us, right? Again, this humble, we're not relying on our intelligence, We're not relying on our own strength. We're coming to him and we're saying, Jesus, you do scare me. This is weird. People don't normally rise from the dead, right? But I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm gonna follow you because you're my only hope. And Jesus is gonna grow you from there. And so again, the point of this this text this morning is not to offend you, it's not to drive you away, it's to kinda like help focus for you that your own personal satisfaction, your happiness, your fullness, your sexual joy, your eating the right foods, your entertainment pleasure, your perfect friendships, your storybook community, all those things which can be blessings in this world are not ultimately what it's about. Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm the main point. Don't miss that he's the main point, calling you to come to him he loves you, he gave his life for you, he rose from the dead, he's the one proven himself worthy of following, he's saying don't rely on your own strength. And he says very specifically in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The spirit gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Major Bible theme, flesh is not evil, it's just not enough. When he says flesh, he doesn't just mean skin. We kind of use that word in different ways. In modern, in modern life, he means our humanity, right? Your muscles aren't enough. Your brilliance is not enough. Your intelligence is not enough. Your charisma is not enough. All those things are great gifts that you can use for God's glory. What you're good at. We're all good at different things, right? We all have different skills. We all have different jobs. We have different amounts of money and different assets and different things that we can give to bless others and and glorify God. He's saying, those things are fine. They're not bad, but they're not enough. Only the spirit is enough. The spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all for giving eternal life. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's a uh, picture I have here of a guy doing negative bench press. This is something, back before the doctor told me I couldn't lift heavy weights anymore (laughs) because of a messed up shoulder. We used to do this thing um, probably not that much weight, but we would do this thing where you'd put a lot of weight on it. It was more than you can lift one time, and it's called negative reps. Have you ever heard of this? Negative reps? And it would actually make you stronger by lifting more than you could lift. H- how would you do that, right? How can you lift more than you can lift? Well, you'd have a spotter lift it off for you, and then you'd just lower it as slowly as you could. It's called a negative rep. If, if you're trying to work out, you're welcome. This is a great way to work out. But you have to have a spotter, right? Because by definition, you're lifting more than you can lift, so you can't start that lift. There's no way you can do this without a spotter. You have to have someone lift it for you, because if if you're lifting what you can lift, you're doing it wrong. The whole point of a negative rep is to lift more than you can lift, okay? Are you getting it? Are you following the illustration? He's saying your strength is not enough. You need the Spirit. Spirit. You need the spirit to give you life. You can't do it. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you to be strong. He's just saying by definition, you can't have spiritual life by your flesh. Our flesh has never been enough to resurrect us. We need help from the outside, from this God who has life within himself. Um, pray, make this a point of prayer. Pray that God would move in your life in such a way. I've been praying this a lot with Loris, one of our elders. We, we spend an hour praying together every week. We pray things like, Lord, make us better at praying you know, things like that. We pray things like, Lord, make our church a praying church. Um, And one of the prayers that we pray often, and this seems to have been coming up the last few weeks with different scenarios, is, Lord, will you move in such a way in this particular situation? Maybe it's a marriage that's troubled or a particular health issue or something else. Will you move in such a way that we will see your glory, that we won't be able to say, I did that, right? Because that's a real danger, we pray for something, God answers it, and he's like, hey, I figured that all out. And we forget that we prayed for that. Pray that God would move in such a way that you would know it's not your strength. You would know it's his strength. That's something I've been praying for more and more. I think that's kind of where we are as, as we as an organization say, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna plant a new church, we're gonna reorganize everything. Uh, we're going to just kind of start over again. By the way, we live in Fort Hood, where half of you are going to move away this summer, right? We're just praying, Lord, we can't do this. Our church is 13 years old. We should, we should be strong enough to kind of have everything figured out by now, right? But we're praying that God would take us into new places where, where he's honored and where we would just be able to say, God showed up. God did something there that we couldn't do on our own. We're not relying on our strength or our experience or how smart we are. We're relying on him. I was really hoping, I'm gonna wrap up here, I was really hoping that the backpack would be returned and that would, wouldn't that make a great wraparound like at the end of the story like, and the Lord brought it back, but so far he said no, right? So far he said no, and you know what though? It's another opportunity for me to say, you know what? Sure, I had 15 years of tax information and important sermons and things like that on my laptop that I lost, but it's, a, it's an important opportunity a great opportunity for me to say, I don't need that, Jesus. I need whatever you give me. What you choose to give me, that's what I will have. I'm going to do the best with whatever you give me, and I'm going to trust you. And I want to encourage you with that as well. As we enter in the season, again, Lent or no Lent, whatever season you're in, if you just take the, the opportunities that God brings you and say, God, teach me to trust you more than I trust myself. Let me pray now. God, thank you that you love us. We do pray that we wouldn't be distracted by the gifts. We wouldn't be distracted by full bellies or smart brains or strong arms. We wouldn't be distracted by our own faithfulness. We wouldn't be distracted by our own commitment. God, we would see you and see you only as the point. We would come to Jesus knowing that you love us because in Jesus you gave us hope Jesus took our sins. Jesus gives us resurrection life. Jesus, we thank you for that. We pray that you transform us in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.